Hello and welcome to the Alien Chronicles, a podcast that focuses on human dimension of a rather complex issue of immigration in the US. I am your host, Sadia Khan. Every time I interview an immigrant on my podcast, I'm always inspired by the diversity and depth of their experiences. It is like a treasure trove of information that I want to absorb and mine off. This podcast, in fact, humanizes immigrants who've come to call America home. Our today's guest is yet another example of an inspiring story with its own twists and turns. Lisa Gen was born in Russia. Her parents and she left Moscow in 1989 on the verge of the collapse of the Soviet Union in hopes of resettling in America under a program for bringing Soviet Jews to the United States as refugees. They had a lengthy immigration process that was typical of Russian Jewish families at the time. And they spent seven months in total in Austria and Italy before being admitted to the United States. Eventually, Lisa's family settled in Skokie, Illinois, in a diverse community. Lisa is a lawyer by profession, but she has worked on human rights issues throughout her career. She's a city girl who has spent most of her time in Manhattan, but now lives in Westchester County in New York with her husband and her two young children. We will ask her how she's liking the burbs. Currently, she is serving as the president of the board of House of the Roses Volunteer Dance Company, an organization which brings dance and creative movement workshops and opportunities to perform to children and youth in New York City's homeless shelters and community centers. We welcome Lisa to our show. Lisa, so good to have you here. Thank you so much, Sadia. It's good to be here. So your journey as a refugee is relevant to what's happening right now, especially with migrant children. Although I would like to clarify that your experiences as a refugee are not the same as these children are going through because most of them are fleeing war and conflict. While when you left Soviet Union, there was no active conflict, there was turmoil. But still, I would like to understand what was it like, the transition period, we were to look through the eyes of a nine-year-old you, what would we see? For me, it was kind of a, a sense of total dislocation, but also filled with wonder about this completely new environment that was so different from what I'd known, but also I knew wouldn't actually be the eventual place I would end up. So it was like a seven-month period of time outside of time. I wasn't in school. In fact, I, I, my parents took me out of school in Russia several months early because they did not want me to become a pioneer in the Communist Party and then to forswear that immediately. And they thought that would be a very poor lesson for me to swear allegiance to something and then repudiate it immediately. So for that reason, they actually took me out of school early and I had a limbo period of several months of living with my grandparents while they were getting ready to go and not be in school. And then we went through, you know, two very different kinds of environments. In Austria, we lived in a small mountain town called Purkstal in a kind of a hotel that had been repurposed to house Russian Jewish refugees specifically. So we lived with many other families that were going through the same thing and everybody's parents were under tremendous stress in that era, nobody left with money. Everybody's parents were sort of struggling to find means to provide for their children, worrying about what the next part of the immigration journey would be, trying to earn some kind of a living basically by doing chores around the hotel that I'm sure were not being um, fairly compensated. And in an odd twist that actually continues to explain why to this day I don't eat pork, even though I don't otherwise observe kosher laws, we were served pork schnitzel almost every other night. And, you know, I, I don't know if that was some kind of a 
twisted joke on the part of the owners of the hotel or, or just a form of ignorance, but it was definitely something that I maybe didn't realize the import of fully at the time, but later on just was, again, seared in my memory as kind of indicative of our being out of place and maybe not entirely welcome. And it's so interesting you say that because, and it does strike a chord with me as well, because as you said, that's one, one tradition or one part of who we are that we keep as Muslims. We don't eat pork. Again, we don't follow all the other like laws, as you said, we, but this is one thing that we've kept. And I just cannot imagine if somebody were to do that to me. I'm pretty sure it must have been devastating for them to go through just that one experience, right? Then you came to the U.S. and you settled in Skokie, Illinois. Yes, yeah. After Austria, we went through another three-month stay in Italy where we lived in a different environment with a, another nuclear family. But our parents were, again, they were really busy scrambling. Um, my dad had brought some artifacts and cultural objects from Russia because he knew that that was something that people did for money was to sell those in like the Italian market. So he was doing that and my mom was cleaning houses and, you know, we were just trying to do our best to be not in the way. And then when we came to the States, there was kind of a moment where the reality hit me that this transitional period with all of its ups and downs and difficulties, but also interesting components was just a transition. And then this was our new life and our new life required English. And that was something that I didn't have. Oh, you didn't speak English at all? I actually knew one word in English, and that was because my parents had with them an alphabet book that was meant probably for toddlers. And I really liked the picture under the letter O. It was a picture of a purple octopus and a green hat, and I was very enamored with this picture, so I learned the word octopus, which is not the most useful word to know. What about your parents? Did they speak fluent English? Yeah, this was a you know a somewhat unusual part of, of our family story that, unlike many immigrant families where no one speaks, but then the children learn first and then kind of become ambassadors to, to American society for their parents. My parents both spoke fluent, almost flawless English. My mom spoke practically accentless English because my grandmother was American. My mother's mother was actually born in the United States. And my mom was raised bilingual in the Soviet Union and was speaking you know, English from birth and has very vivid and very mixed memories of being made by her mom to speak English in public places at the height of the Cold War when this was something that just wasn't done and didn't happen. And so that's how she came to be completely fluent in English. And she also became a translator. And my dad on his own studied languages and was a linguist and became a translator as well. So both of them were fluent speakers. Did you feel betrayed that they both were like fluent English speakers and they didn't even teach you while you were growing up, like, like at least until you were nine and you left Russia? At the time, I was really angry and I definitely <laughs> felt betrayed because I was an only child. I spent a lot of time in the company of adults and was used to having my thoughts and opinions respected and heard in adult spaces and to be able to contribute to conversation. And I suddenly found myself, and this was something that I really didn't have the frame of reference to predict, being completely mute. So I did feel betrayed. And I, you know, especially when I heard that perfect English flowing out of the mouths <laughs> of my very own parents. It was like they did a magic, like a really evil magic trick. And suddenly they became this other entity that was English speaking and capable of functioning in this new society. And I was like behind a wall of, you know, language silence. What kind of child were you like in terms of your habits, your likes, dislikes? Can you elaborate on that? 
I'm an only child and, you know, my, my parents worked throughout my childhood, but it was, and you know, in this way it was a very different society. They had a lot of flexibility to work from home. There was just um, tremendous support in the workplaces for families. You know, my dad tells funny, but in contrast to our society, not funny stories about, you know, telling his coworkers that my mom was away on a business trip and then saying, just go, you know, go home and spend time with your daughter. What are you doing here? And, you know, this probably also explains some of the lack of productivity and the eventual lack of competitiveness of Soviet society. But from the perspective of families, there's a lot to recommend that kind of flexibility. So even though my parents didn't really have help, they were also, they were around a lot in my childhood. But at the same time, I didn't have siblings. And I grew up a lot in my own imaginary worlds. And I lived pretty much in those and then in the world of adults. So from a very young age, I was constantly exposed to and surrounded by very vivid and vivacious and emotionally intense um, and sentimental and tearful adult conversation, not just from my parents, but from their wider circle of friends. I think, it, you know, Russian society at that time was very emotionally expressive and, you know, interactions between adults covered, I think, a much wider range of expression than what is typically the case in America. How so did it that impact, was my world. How did it impact you as a child listening to those stories and seeing those emotions, especially with adults? Because normally adults don't express their emotions in front of children, right? That's, that's one thing that people tend to not do as much. And then how did it impact you, like, growing up and your outlook on life in general? I think I felt a lot more connected to my parents and to other adults. And like I was sort of empathically taking on a lot of the feelings, you know, sometimes the burdens and the contradictions of adults in a way that probably in American society would be considered, you know, boundary crossing or not appropriate. And it gives me a sense that all of these ideas of boundaries are very culturally relative. And all of these things are both burdens and gifts, because I think, you know, would form the parts of myself that I'm in a lot of ways really like, to be sensitive, to be open, to perceive people where they are, to want to share on a deeper level and want to hear more about, you know, how people are actually doing. And at the same time, it was heavy. And even to this day, you know, sometimes people who know me, when they ask me how I'm doing, I say, do you want the American answer or the Russian answer? <laughs> because in Russian society, you don't ask how you're doing unless you're willing to hear a few paragraphs. And here, people ask it in a very perfunctory way, and you're expected to say, fine, no matter what's going on. And so I think the way that I was raised and being an only child in adult society really heightened the way that those cultural differences impacted me. And you have two young children, right? I do. Are you carrying on that tradition, that Russian tradition of being emotionally exposed and vulnerable to your children and expressing those emotions in front of them and, and having that kind of a connection? Or have you um, adopted the American way of raising your children? I hope that I will teach them this kind of emotional openness and that there is a much wider range of emotional experience that's part of life and that should be expressed and that all of us, boys and girls, should be able to cry and experience the full range of empathy and sensitivity and vulnerability that's out there in our emotional toolbox and at the same time that there's something to be said for those boundaries and for giving the children kind of their own bubble and their own world, which they also have by definition, because there are two of them. And that's something that that kind of buffer of another child to just run off with was not available to me. So Lisa, I want to go back to your childhood. 
when you came here like to the US and you settled in Skokie, Illinois, you were growing up in a very diverse community. Um, you had people from, your children from Pakistan, Thailand, all over the world basically, and you were interacting with them and you were exposed to so many cultures. How did it change your outlook on life generally and also your interaction with people from other ethnic, religious, cultural backgrounds? Yeah, that was something, again, you know, I think a lot of things uh, when you're a child, you just perceive as normal. Whatever your experience is, is the experience that you think is out there to be had. So we moved to this very unique community, Skokie, Illinois, which had been a magnet for waves of immigrant communities for generations. It actually historically had had a lot of Jewish residents who were fleeing the Holocaust in post-war Europe. And at one point it had the, the highest concentration of Holocaust survivors outside of Israel and Poland. And that was sometime before we got there. And then over time, because it had really good schools and was closely connected to the city and had really you know affordable housing, it had become this point of attraction for different communities from all over the world. Like you said, there were you know, huge populations of families from India and Pakistan and from Southeast Asia and East Asia. Asia. And so when I entered that world, that was just my world. And that was what defined America for me. Um, you know, that was the, my first experience of being in America was that. And so I thought this is a pluralistic society and I don't have to be just a Russian Jewish immigrant. And I, that doesn't have to be the definition of who I am. I'm part of this much more multicultural society. And I think, you know, I bonded in a lot of ways, not just with children who were immigrants, but also first-generation children who, who were born here, but whose parents were immigrants, over having this experience kind of closely in our family. And so my time in school was very much defined by going to the homes of my friends and experiencing the music that their parents were playing and the food that they were having for dinner. And we would do our homework and then we would be given the snacks that were bought at that particular specialty store because by virtue of these immigrant communities, there were all these stores that were serving, um, that were providing all of this food. And that was what America was. And it was really, now I realize how unusual that is and also how lucky I was as an immigrant child to end up in that kind of a community where my experience was unique in some ways, but part of this much broader fabric of other of other immigrant kids. Yeah, but what I'm hearing from you right now, it seems like at that time, people were willing to, like they were very open to this idea of having refugee immigrants uh, come into this country and integrate. And they were like very receptive to that. And that's why you integrated into the society relatively easily. I'm sure there must be some challenges that you and your family faced. But now when we look at the rhetoric around refugees especially and refugee kids uh, who are fleeing war and, and conflict, it's a very different outlook or at least the way people perceive them. Do you see that now, given that you were a refugee at some point and now you're seeing this rhetoric? And how do we deconstruct this notion of refugees are bad and they shouldn't come to this country? And why do you think that has changed in these last, say, 30 years? Yeah, I think there are a lot of contributing reasons, but one of them is, you know, it's a very old story and it's one just simply of scapegoating, um, scapegoating communities that don't have um, social capital and power in this country, especially, you know, newly arrived refugees and, and those who are trying to come in here, because during the same time period, we have seen our society become increasingly unequal. We started just in the last few years talking about income inequality and the concentration of wealth and resources at the top that has 
been felt, you know, in large swaths of American society. And there are a lot of people who are questioning why their um, standards of living are going down, why there are no good paying jobs, why their health insurance premiums are as high as they are and were before the Affordable Care Act, and these problems haven't fully been fixed. And so there are a lot of people who are angry and who are, who are looking for someone to blame. And now, you know, that convenient answer has been offered in the form of racial minorities in our own country and immigrants. And people have made it their point to say, you know, don't look at the wealthy corporate donors. Don't look at deregulation that is poisoning and hurting American families. Look over here. These are the people that are trying to take what's yours and have convinced people that their problem is not those at the top who are actually hoarding the wealth, but those who are even less fortunate than them who are just trying to come and get the same opportunities that, you know, the very recent ancestors of people who today say they're non-immigrant Americans had when they came here. You know, there's an undercurrent of race to it too, that people feel that they can't possibly have anything in common with, as you say, you know, more recent um, groups of refugees coming from Syria and other war-torn countries, people are putting up an emotional wall between themselves and these families and refusing to recognize our common humanity. And I think a lot of that does come down to racism. So when I say there are economic explanations, I don't exclude that there are also very unfortunately just simple racist explanations as well. And I think the way we can break down that wall is through dialogue and understanding what I think humanizing those experiences is is extremely important. And I think that's why, at least that's what I'm trying to do through this podcast, is just to humanize those immigrant experiences and show the listeners when we talk about immigration, these are the people we are talking about. And they are normal people like you, you and I. Did you ever want to go back? to Moscow and did you like ever go back? So I went back to Russia in 2005 when I was in law school at NYU and I got an internship for 10 weeks at a very prominent human rights organization in Russia. It was the first one to come up in Putin's Russia, it's called uh, Memorial. And I went there without sort of really any expectation or knowledge of what it would be like, but with the intention of maybe I wasn't even conscious of this intention of trying to pass. And so I didn't live sort of near the U.S. embassy compound. And through connections, I rented a small studio apartment that was kind of on the outskirts. And so I needed to take this uh, special kind of minibus van called a Marshrutka from my apartment to the subway, to the metro station, to my work. And I was speaking Russian all the time. And I didn't sort of try to go to like the American bars of which there are certainly many. And so I tried to live kind of as a Russian person, but in knowing that I left 20 years ago and that I didn't like know any slang and I probably sounded like I had gone to sleep for 20 years and just woke up with this (laughs) sort of childlike vision in Russian. It wasn't that my vocabulary wasn't good, but that there were just whole swaths of life that I hadn't experienced in Russian. And I was working at this human rights organization. And I think that was, you know, a huge component of how I perceived that society. You know, at the time, we were working with internally displaced people. They were refugees because they were from within the Russian territory, from Chechnya and Dagestan, who had been through horrible experiences, who had been tortured, whose families had been displaced, and who were then trying to make it in an increasingly, I think, you know, racist society and who were coming to this organization for legal help to try to figure out these like impossible Byzantine bureaucratic systems to get their kids into school or to even be able to find a place to live. And so my whole perception of Russia was really influenced by seeing it through the eyes of the people who were the most marginalized in that society. But what I saw 
was that, you know, from the era of the Soviet Union, which I am not going to try to see through rose-colored glasses or to apologize for any aspects of a totalitarian regime that were truly odious, but at the same time, there was an animating ideal of some kind of equality and, you know, equality of opportunity and kind of a, a leveling that allowed for for not what we have here, this huge um, disparity and this huge inequality. In this relatively short period, Russia became this incredibly unequal society where there was basically no middle class. And what you had were, you know, businessmen who were having these clandestine conversations over $800 sushi dinners. And then you had these, you know, migrants who were being, you know, beaten in the Moscow metro, metro because the police department in Moscow was actively recruiting people who had worked in war zones to be police officers rather than doing psychological screenings to make sure that people were really stable and humane to do that job. And then somewhere in between, you had young people who were so few in number, who were still living with their parents, who couldn't imagine how they're going to actually be able to make enough money to have a family and maybe two or three professions that people could have that would actually allow them to earn a living and eventually be able to move out on their own. So the change was really dramatic. And what I felt like I saw was this terrible mix of sort of Soviet-style apathy and cynicism and uselessness of trying to engage and change things together with a very rugged, ruthless, every man and woman for him or herself individualism that was borrowed from the West. And that mix was very disturbing. This is such an in interesting perspective, Lisa, because I think all of us tend to look at things through lens of our own biases, right? So we'll be like, oh, this system is will not work, or this is this is a good system, this is a bad system, and you break it down so nicely that there is good and bad in everything, and there's always the like, consequences of what system you're following or what's happening. And as you said, sometimes um, what's borrowed from somewhere else may not work for you. It's such an interesting breakdown or deconstruct of Russian society, but that's your perspective, right? Now, Absolutely. how did Russians, how did they perceive you? Because I would like to understand if they thought, like, if they looked at you as, as Russian. You know, it's a, it's a really good question. I'm not really sure exactly how to answer I think they thought I was just a really strange Russian? specimen. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of ways, even just the, the word Russian is a little bit loaded because, you know, in Russian society, we were Jewish. And I, my oh. family only became Russian when we came here because that was the place that we were from. And then, so I, when I went back there, I think, you know, the people who got to know me better, probably despite the fact that I was speaking Russian, still thought of me as American. And even in the way that I presented myself, and this goes to some cultural differences, you know, there, there are ways that people, so to speak, wear their face in different societies. And in Russian society, people glower. And in American society, culturally, people generally have a more neutral to positive facial expression in relation to the rest of the world, unless they're really having a bad day. <laughs> but the average Russian's day is the American bad day in terms of <laughs> facial expression. So, so people might have thought of that I was a bit imbecilic mm. um, because I, you know, I, I was trying to project friendliness and openness. And they're like, what is there to smile about? Look around, which is a very legitimate question. But this is the way that I tried to, to be disarming. So I think there are lots of ways that we're not even conscious of, of body language and smile and the way that we speak, even in a language that we know well, the intonations that give away that we're already not so much from this place and that we are have now become a hybrid that doesn't belong in entirely in either place, but also belongs in both. 
would you go back again? Because this was 2005, right? It's been 14 years. Did you, first of all, did you ever go back again? Or is this, was this the last trip that you took? And would you ever think of going back, taking your children? Because they're American. I mean, I don't know how much association they have with your Russian identity. And would you ever consider taking them back just to visit? You know, so I haven't been back. One of the other things that I didn't mention that was so off-putting was trying to revisit the places that I had gone to as a child. And there was one particular moment that pretty much sums it up. There was a an ice cream parlor that my dad used to take me to as a child that was called the Polar Bear. And the Polar Bear still existed, but it had become a strip club. And that, in a lot of ways, just in one snapshot, kind of summarized for me that this Moscow was in all these ways no longer the Moscow that I remembered and didn't feel like the homecoming that I had hoped I would have. And I haven't been back and I've thought about going back. And one of the things that I don't, you know, I don't want to discount the possibility of is human rights workers have been targeted in Russia and including human rights workers who worked for Memorial. I mean, I officially got my visa through the organization and my, you know, my name, all my information is in those records. And so there is, you know, there's a legitimate question in my mind about the safety of going back and certainly of going back with my family and with my children. So that's part of it. And another part of it is, you know, the profound alienation I feel from that society now, both as a result of the experience I had in, in 2005, but also everything that's come since. You know, Russia is, in, in my view, and my view is obviously not alone in this, a terrible actor on the world stage. Russia is actively trying to destabilize democracies around the world and trying to usher in an era of right-wing populism all over the world. And so the idea of going back there now seems, you know, really profoundly alien to me. Would I ever go back? I, I hope that in my lifetime I will see Russia become something totally different. I hope I'll see the fall of Putin and the rise of a more truly democratic society that is open and hospitable, and that's the society I'd like to return to. Yeah. So there's something I wanted to ask you about people who have influenced your life. We've had this conversation even before this interview. We had another conversation, you and I. And in that conversation, you talked about your grandmother, and that's something that I I really want our listeners to know that aspect of your life and that person who influenced your life and your family's journey so tremendously. Your grandmother, who was in fact an American, she was a feminist, she went to Russia to fight for women's rights, and that's how your mother was born there. So can you talk a little bit about your grandmother? Sure. So my grandmother, Ruth, my mother's mother, was born um, in the Chicago area. She was one of three girls, and her parents had immigrated to the States from what is today Carlsbad in the Czech Republic and was then part of Austria-Hungary. And as a young woman, she was clearly always very passionate and strong and deeply intellectual, and she was very curious about the rest of the world. And she was also, as I, you know, I had a recent conversation with my mom, she was also in the 30s, you know, living the time of the Great Depression here. So speaking to the turns of history, you know, now we have in America this perception that we're this, you know, affluent society and everybody wants a piece of us. But back then, you know, young people looking for opportunity were looking around them and seeing a society in decline. And so she was, she set her sights abroad. She wound up going to the Soviet Union once on her honeymoon. 
and being more enchanted with the Soviet Union than she was with her husband. Uh, and she, this is a part of the story I learned after I was 18. Um, and then she, she returned to the Soviet Union and traveled and was really particularly, as I said, she was a feminist interested in the, in the more progressive attitudes toward gender roles and the role of women in Soviet society at the time. And she ended up meeting my grandfather, who was uh, Jewish and Ukrainian, on a horseback trip in the Ural Mountains. It all sounds very romantic in retrospect. And, and she ended up staying there and having my, my uncle, my mother's older brother, and my mom there um, in the Moscow area. And she stayed there for the rest of her life, which was unfortunately um, cut short. She, she had cancer relatively young and died at the age of 52. So I actually never knew her. You know, she lived in Russia with a packed suitcase under her bed for fear of being um, taken away from her family. There were a number of Americans who were living in Russia during those years, always with this sort of, you know, tenuous feeling about whether they could really be there. And she returned just once to the United States shortly before she died, and she reunited with all of her family. And it was a really heartbreaking visit because it brought to the fore all that she had sort of lost and not had the opportunity to cultivate in all those years that she was really far removed from her home and from her sisters and her parents. So she was just this incredibly interesting person who made these very radical choices that are responsible for, for our family being here today. I can see some of it, I think, the way you describe your grandmother in you, like, and you are a lawyer uh, by profession, but then you've also worked so much in, in the realm of human rights and, and you worked. And right now you're like the president of this organization called House of the Roses Volunteer Dance Company. What attracted you to join this organization? And can you talk a little bit about this organization? And then you stayed on because you you became part of this during your like law school and you've stayed on with it. Can you elaborate on that a bit? So yes, I joined House of the Roses Volunteer Dance Company very, very early on in its existence in 2005, in the, in the winter of 2005. And at that point, it had been around for two years. You know, it was a small program of volunteers who were going into New York City homeless shelters and community centers, doing dance and creative movement workshops, um, and then providing performance opportunities. And um, I joined when I was still in law school. And I was uh, both on the board and the founding board of the organization. And I was always a you know, volunteer teaching artist. So throughout these years, I've taught at very various of the homeless shelters and community centers that we serve. And I am currently the longest tenured person in the organization <laughs> because I think it was providing this incredibly important counterpoint to our fascination as a society with the, at least, you know, in the progressive wing, I think, with the rational, with the analytical, with relating to each other only through language, as much as I respect the ability to do that as we're doing right now. <laughs> um, and, and this is another way of relating to children in these homeless shelters who, you know, who are not often given a platform, who are not often given a voice in our society to speak about their experience and movement and dancing, which had always been such an important part of my life and a, and a form of expression and an outlet for me, was something that allowed me to feel connected with the children and to create something with them on a more equal footing, not as, you know, teacher who knows it all to student who knows nothing, but as 
you know, in some ways equals in a, in a creative process um, that who respect each other and respect that each of us has something to contribute. There's one particular episode that I think for me really kind of illustrates that point. And it happened last year at the um, shelter where I teach. We were doing a mirroring exercise, which basically involves, you know, a one person in a pair doing movement and the other serves as a mirror and copies the movement and then you switch. And I was doing this with this six-year-old girl, which is on the very younger end of the children we work with. And she was moving in ways that I never moved before. She was moving really fast, maybe was even a little bit spastic. And she was all over the place, but she was very joyful. And she was spinning around and I was trying to keep follow up, you know, follow her and keep up and realizing my age. <laughs> but also doing what she was doing gave me such a different visceral feeling for her life. Like what, what it must be to be in this little body full of so much energy and wanting to put that energy in the world and constantly being told to sit down and be quiet and do this and don't be in the way and, you know, take out your pencil and do your homework. And what is that like to want to do what she was doing in that moment and, and be so constrained? So I've always gone back to it because I feel like we're doing something that is, you know, incredibly valuable for the children that we're working with, but also just extremely rewarding for us and, and contributes to constant kind of growth and, and the ability to relate in this totally unique way. Children have that the tendency to be defined in these ways. I mean, no matter what the adults tell them. And it's always nice to see how they can still be expressive and they, they can still enjoy the little joys that as adults, we don't see anymore anymore. And that's why I think looking at the world through a child's eyes is always fascinating. Like when I sit down with my kids, it's what they're thinking and how they're perceiving the world is, is so much more, I think, um, I don't know, informative and worth, you know, just like absorbing all that knowledge. Lisa, before we end this segment, this particular segment of our interview, I always ask my interviewees, two questions. One, I always, the second one sometimes. And it just gives me an idea of how they perceive the country they call home. And the question is, describe America in one word. It's really hard to do it in one word, but I think in, in today's society, I would say unequal. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I started to, to allude to it earlier in terms of just you know, the, the vast income inequality that we're seeing and the destabilizing effects that it has on society. And I think there's a, always been an element of American exceptionalism here that we're sort of, we in America are not subject to the laws of human history and we don't follow the trajectory of other societies, but we're, you know, we're reaching levels of income inequality that are really destabilizing and have historically caused other societies to go through periods of great turmoil and upheaval. And we just close our eyes to that possibility because we think things that have happened elsewhere can't happen here. But that is where we are. And we're unequal both, you know, socioeconomically and, and racially. We still have profound structural racial barriers to success that affect you know, millions and millions and millions of our fellow citizens. And I think we're now seeing a lot of those things brought to the fore with the current administration, but the administration wouldn't be here if those undercurrents were not already very strong and we're just not as, as aware of them. But some people, people will be like, oh, we are a capitalistic society and that's how capitalistic societies operate and you just have to work hard. And this, this whole notion of assuming that if you work hard, you will achieve whatever, completely discounting the nuances of, of being born in a, in a family and in a, in a particular part of the society and how that basically 
transforms you as a person, that's completely disregarded, right? And and that's that's something that we've seen. Um, I'm sure our, some of our listeners may be thinking the same. It's a capitalistic society, you know, whoever works harder will get more than the ones who aren't. But the reality of the matter is we don't we don't look deep into why those people, those people who are marginalized, why are they marginalized? And we've, we, we don't, we tend to ignore their plight somehow. That's definitely true. And, you know, I think my, part of my answer to capitalistic society, cap, even capitalist societies can look different ways. And I think what we have now is runaway, increasingly dysregulated capitalism that really puts corporate greed and the welfare of the very few above everybody else, which is not, doesn't have to be an inherent feature of capitalism. And I also think, you know, capitalism can be a useful economic principle for organizing society, but it's not, it's not a system of values. And this is kind of where, where I come back to what I said about the Soviet Union, again, without disregarding the terrible aspects of the Soviet Union, as a system of values, the idea of the inherent dignity and worth of every individual and providing for society in which everybody can hopefully flourish, but at least have their basic human needs met is a much more beautiful idea to me. And I think that it's it's possible to have a capitalistic society that reweights those values. Lisa, now we move on to our rapid fire round. Okay. And this is like, this is something that <laughs> I, we are hoping we'll get to know you even more with this. So I'll start with my first question. Um, reading books or listening to music? Reading books. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would that be? Turkish food, like the veggie mezes. Really? Yes. <laughs> if you could only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? This might sound very sappy, but I think I'd have to take uh, my husband and two kids. <laughs> Name three things on your bucket list. I finally want to speak fluent Spanish. I've been trying to teach myself very slowly. Do you know, like, have you started? Oh, so you are in the process of learning it already. Yeah, so I speak French, so it oh. should be relatively doable. And so I speak some conversational Spanish, but it's not where I want it to be. So how, how one many, of these days I'm going to learn it. How many languages do you know? I guess three and a half. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, wait, that's just one thing. And then I want to see the Himalayas. Ah, and I want to go to Machu Picchu. I want to do that too. Machu Picchu, yes. <laughs> Let's go together. <laughs> yes, we should actually. If you could have any superpower, what would that be? I want to fly. You want to fly? I'm scared of flying. I don't know why. Well, it's scary, but if it was a superpower, it feels really different. Like, yeah. I feel like I would, want the, I would want to fly and also not be afraid of heights. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. You're moving forward failure. Like something that helped you be successful in life later. Something, a failure oh. that taught you something. Oh, there are a lot of those. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I think some of it was actually, you know, that struggle in the early period when I came to the States and I was still learning English and, you know, contemporary terms, I was definitely bullied despite the picture that I painted of the schools where I was, you know, there was still a lot of unkindness um, to somebody who just got here, who dressed funny and was funny in a lot of ways. And I think that gave me such a lifelong appreciation for what it is to be different and, you know, a lifetime of being drawn both in friends and partners to people who could relate to that, to that idea. And I think it made me a lot stronger. Your biggest achievement? I think it's still having a sensitive soul and not being like overly hardened by life, but also not being completely crushed. <laughs> Describe yourself in three words. Oh, this is the most terrible <laughs> question. Okay, I'm going to say smart, kind, and super, super sensitive. So there you go. You did it. <laughs> oh, what's the best piece of advice we ever got? 
Uh, it's been given so many times over, but just this too shall pass. Your idea of vacation? Combination of nature and culture, like lots of parts of the Mediterranean, mm. Croatia, Tuscany, places where you can see like rugged coastal cliffs and medieval towns. It's very pretty. Your all-time favorite movie? Uh, Amélie. And it's very ma- kind of magical realism and whimsical and, and just light and airy. It, just, it made an impression on me. I said you had abroad in oh. Paris and it was like the time of life and the time this movie came out, it was very resonant. Best Russian restaurant in NYC. It's not one of the fancy ones. It's actually in Brighton Beach. And the Russian name Utsuoshi translates as at your mother-in-law's. But it also is called Eladia's Fancy Food. And it's a oh. hole in the wall that is a combination of Russian, uh, Uzbek, and Korean cuisine. Oh. And it is super tasty, not fancy. And you know, those that are not fancy are the more authentic ones. Favorite emoji. Oh, the the laughing, crying one with all the tears <laughs> coming out. I feel like that's half of life. <laughs> Tea or coffee? Coffee. Home is? Safe. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa. This was so interesting. Thank you, Sadia. Thank you for doing this this podcast, for this interview and everything that you're doing in the world. It's such an important conversation to have, not just with me, but obviously with all of your interviewees. And thank you for putting it into the world. Thank you. And I would like to thank all the listeners for joining us today. And please do subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to check out our website. It's www.alienchroniclespod.com. And if you have a story to share or any new ideas, please contact us at info at alienchroniclespod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien. You can follow us on Instagram. Our Instagram is at The Alien Chronicles. And if you have a story to tell, please do reach out. Or if you want me to ask particular questions from my guests, please do send us an email. You can go to our website. You can fill out the contact information form, send us your ideas, and we will definitely incorporate them in our future episodes. And please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected.